At this time, I would like to dismiss the children that have pre-registered for children's worship. You can meet Pastor Nathan and Miss Amy at the door. Make your way to a time of children's worship. So, parents, if you need to walk your child or let them make their way to the door at this time, please do so. I'd like to ask the rest of us to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. The song that Amy just finished singing, written by Keith and Kristen Getty and Stuart Townen, is based on a passage known as the Magnificat. The words of Mary recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56, that will serve as the basis for the message this morning. As you're turning there, I want to just... uh, Share another praise and request. My daughter Emma still is continuing to do well. The things that she has been doing like coughing and clearing her trach and movement and alertness are happening on a very consistent basis. And that's, that's wonderful. That is great good news. Not only that it's happening, but it's happening consistently. So for that, we give praise to the Lord. But also ask for your prayers that God would continue to watch over us. Uh, One of the reasons that we keep a close eye on the COVID numbers is because Emma is in the high-risk category. And we do have therapists and nurses that come in the house. In fact, when our therapists have to care for a patient that has been diagnosed with COVID, we have to put therapy on hold for two weeks just because the risk is so great that they may unknowingly bring it into the house. Uh, So we are on extra guard, uh, like the proverbial cat in a room full of rocking chairs, Uh, So continue to pray for God's protection over us in that regard and that he'll continue to bring healing to, uh, to Emma. Follow with me as I read the word of the Lord found in Luke 1, 46 through verse 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, her cousin, about three months. And returned to her home. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we praise you this morning along with Mary for your grace. We recognize that Mary's praise is an expression of what you have done in her life. And so, Father, let our praise be an expression of the salvation you have given to us. While our circumstances may be different from Mary and that we've not been called to a a very special uh, mission such as you gave her, we are recipients of your grace nonetheless. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would renew our experience of your grace. And if we have allowed the anxieties of this world and the problems of life to rob us of a focus on your grace, forgive us. And return our gaze to your magnificent grace. I ask this. 
through the name of our Lord Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the church said, Amen. This morning, Pastor Nathan and I are beginning a series on the songs of Christmas. Now, we're not going to be preaching and exegeting Jingle Bells or Frosty the Snowman, although that could be done, believe it or not. We're going to stick with the songs that are found in the New Testament. Songs that revolve around the mystery of the Incarnation and what God did in sending Jesus to the earth. So our primary text will actually come from the Gospel of Luke. Although later in the month we will move over to Philippians to take a look at Philippians chapter 2. The reason for this series is not just that it's Christmas, but that because more than any other holiday, music is associated with Christmas. I mean, what other holiday can you think of in which radio stations change their format and for 30 days play 24 hours of music related to that holiday? When's the last time you've heard a radio station start on August 1st playing the songs of Labor Day? doesn't happen but for Christmas we focus on the music because it is part of this celebration now if you were to take a look at the songs that are sung whether they be secular or sacred many of them not all but many will focus on one theme and that is the theme of joy In the world of the church, we are used to singing the refrain, Joy to the world, our Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Joy. And even outside of the church, in the words of the song made famous by Judy Garland, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Oh, but would that be the case? Even within that secular song, there is this longing that our troubles will be gone and we would know joy. That's because every person longs for joy. That's one of the common elements found between every man, woman, and child. We all have a longing for joy and happiness. There is a philosopher, theologian, mathematician, scientist by the name of Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 15th or the 17th century, genius, really doesn't serve him uh, in describing his abilities. It said that as a 12-year-old, he actually developed some of the fundamentals of calculus when he was 12. This is a guy that had a lot going on. He had an experience with the Lord. And after that experience, he began to apply his intellect to thinking about the gospel and how it applies to our situation in in our fallen state. And he came and he wrote this, quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. In other words, Pascal is saying every person desires happiness. And whatever we do... We do it because we believe it will make us happy. He goes on to say, the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding war is the same desire in both, attended with different views. In other words, some fight because they think it will make them happy. Others don't fight because they believe it will make them happy. He goes on to say, this will never, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. In other words, we are driven by desire to be happy. And everything we do, we do believing it will make us happy. 
So the issue is not, will we seek joy? Or will we seek to be happy? The issue is, where are you seeking joy? The question is, what are you seeking to make you happy? You see, we can celebrate joy not because of the certain time of year that has come upon us. We can celebrate joy not because of gifts that are found under the tree. We celebrate joy because true joy is found in the Lord. True joy is found in the experience of His grace. True joy is found in knowing that we have a relationship with God that He has established because He is good and merciful. True joy is found in experiencing and remembering the magnificent grace of God. Now I know using the adjective magnificent seems out of place. We have been trained to think of grace using one adjective. Can you guess what that adjective is that we typically use to describe the grace of God? That it is a... You're right on. But I use the term magnificent intentionally. Magnificent means impressingly beautiful. The grace of God is beautiful. And Mary's song, known as the Magnificat, emphasizes that beauty. That is the theme. God's grace that gives us joy is the primary theme that is woven throughout the lyrics of this song. And as we begin to look into it, I want to let you know up front, there is no way I'm going to be able to mine the depths, the riches of everything found in these ten verses. It's simply impossible in a brief message like this. I encourage you, therefore, to take time to read and reread this. Take note of how God has described His character. And this morning, however, because I can't focus on all of it, I want to focus on two truths about the grace of God. Let's understand the context before we begin looking at the passage. It starts with Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, live in Jerusalem. Because Zechariah is a priest, and because his duties call for him to be in the temple, that is where they live. But they are an elderly couple. In fact, they are childless. The situation, the hope of having children, has long since faded because there are more years behind them now than are in front of them. Then a miracle takes place. An angel visits Zechariah and passes along to him the truth that his wife, Elizabeth, even though she is advanced in years, is going to have a son. And this son will be the forerunner of the Messiah. He will prepare the way for the Savior who is to come. Six months after this, an angel appears to Mary. Mary is living in Nazareth and she is betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal is a bit more intense than engagement. There's a level of commitment that goes with a betrothal, even though the couple is not officially married. The message that Gabriel brings is found in, starting in verse 30, where he says to Mary, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Supernaturally, by the power of God, Mary is going to bear the Messiah. 
Now in her joy, she decides to go see her cousin Elizabeth. No doubt she was aware that Elizabeth was six months pregnant. So she makes the trip immediately north or south to visit Elizabeth in Jerusalem. The minute that Mary walks into Elizabeth's home and says hello, the baby inside of Elizabeth's womb starts doing somersaults. And Elizabeth, it says in verse 41, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, church breaks out. They start worshiping. Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Because Mary, when you said hello, the baby in my stomach started getting excited. And the worship overflows. And Mary lifts up a song in praise to God. Now, this song that Mary sings is referred to as the Magnificat. That's a Latin phrase, a Latin transliteration of the phrase used at the end of verse 46 where Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's first step in praising God is saying that every part of her being and her inmost person wants to make the Lord look large to the world around her. The idea of magnify means to make big. Now, there are two instruments that we use today to magnify things that we have trouble seeing. One is a telescope. A telescope focuses on objects that are a million light years away and brings them closer so that we can see them and see the detail. The other instrument that is used to make things visible that are unseen is a microscope. Now a microscope doesn't deal with things that are far away. A microscope deals with things that are near, present, cells atoms, electrons that are all around us and within us, but we can't see them. And what does a microscope do? It takes those things that are with us all the time and makes them visible so they are clearly seen. When Mary says that her heart magnifies the Lord, it is like a microscope that wants to magnify the grace of God. You see, the grace of God is all around us, even for believers and non-believers. Everything we have is because of the grace of God. The air we breathe is because of God's grace. The food we eat is because of God's grace. The shelter over our head is because of God's grace. Everything we have is because of the grace of God. And what Mary is saying is that she wants her life to rejoice in God so that the mercy of God is seen clearly in her life. And when we see the grace of God, we will see it as magnificent. It is beautiful. One of the reasons that it is so beautiful is that because it is available to everybody. You see, for the, to experience the grace of God, you don't have to be a somebody. The grace of God is available to anybody and to everybody who will call out seeking it. That's the theme of joy that is found throughout this praise. It's where Mary starts in verse 48. Why is she magnifying the Lord? Why is she rejoicing in her Savior? Because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That phrase looked is more than a casual glance. You see, it's very easy for us to take a look at things and just to give a glance and to move on. To look means he lingered, he, he paid attention to her, to her humble estate. This theme of God's grace being given to those who are the least is continued in verses 52 and 53. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. In other words, He's lifted up those who have nothing. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich, He has sent away empty. 
Now, the lyrics of Mary's praise is shocking because it is counterintuitive to the common wisdom of that culture. You see, their thinking at that time was that a sign of God's grace and power is that you would be wealthy. And that if you were wealthy, then God would use you. It was expected that when the Messiah came, he would come from a well-to-do, powerful family. Because after all, isn't that how you get things done? You look to the powerful, the wealthy, the movers, and the shakers. But God turns that on its head. And he says he has looked upon those who have nothing, and he's going to work through those who appear to be powerless to give glory to his name. Now, lest we start to look down on the thinking of that time, we must recognize that that train of thought is all too prevalent today. We look at the wealthy as those who are blessed by God. We look at those as the ones that can accomplish great things. On Friday afternoon, I confess that I sat down and after eating some after eating a great meal, we celebrated our Thanksgiving on Friday uh, for a lot of different reasons. But nevertheless, while I was fighting off sleep from the turkey, I turned on the match. Now, the match was a, a made-for-TV golfing event where Phil Mickelson, a, a professional golfer, was partnered with Charles Barkley, a retired professional basketball player and commentator, to play Peyton Manning and Steph Curry to raise money for charity. Now, part of the fun is that Charles Barkley, even if you're not familiar with his basketball career, is a person who is not shy about sharing his opinions. Uh, very outspoken and often a lot of fun, whether you agree with him or not. At one point in the match, the commentator pointed out that Barkley was playing with a very expensive set of clubs. And Barkley said, well, yeah, you know, th this company gave me these clubs to play with, and Callaway gives clubs to fill. There's a lot of people sponsoring and giving us stuff to play with. And then he made this observation. He said, now that I am rich, I get free stuff. When I was poor, they didn't give me nothing. Now that I'm rich, I get free stuff. When I was poor, nothing. Now, the reason that happens is because... We idolize wealth and power and ability. So people focus on, merchandisers focus on, if you get this, then you'll play like Phil Mickelson. Or, or if you have this, then you'll be like a, a Bill Gates. We look to model our lives on those that we deem as powerful. But not so with God. Mary had nothing. She was poor. That's why she refers to her status as the humble estate of his servant. The one thing she had was a right attitude toward the Lord. She was his servant. She had nothing else. Now, as we look at verse 48, if you'll allow me just a moment to address where she said, all generations will call me blessed. I want to be as clear as I can here, and clarity is always good for a preacher. Whenever she says, all generations will call me blessed, this is not a call to venerate or to worship Mary in any way. The scripture is clear that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When Mary says here, all generations will call me blessed, it is in reference to grace, to being a recipient of grace, and to the special calling she received to bear Jesus. The truth is, if you have received God's grace, you are blessed. 
And when we live our lives to magnify the grace of God, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will see the grace of God in our lives. And guess what? They will call us blessed because they know that God's favor was upon us. Not because we received all the stuff that the world deems as important, but because we have been redeemed as recipients of God's grace. God looks at her. and It's a reminder that God looks upon those whom the world overlooks. That's why His grace is beautiful. This was a, a scandalous aspect of the ministry of Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus was scandalous in how He reached out to those that the world would never reach toward. You take a, a, a Samaritan woman at the well, an outcast, what does Jesus do? He intentionally waits so He can talk with her. Scandalous. A leper is invited to dinner with Jesus. No one wants to have anything to do with a leper, but here's Jesus saying, I want you to sit at the table with me. A woman who has been sick with an issue of blood for over 20 years, broke in body and in bank, nothing. And what does the Lord say? Don't be afraid, you're healed. That is Jesus reaching out to those who feel like they have nothing to offer God. That's a grace that notices you too. You see, often we are fooled into thinking, well, the Lord wouldn't notice me. Why should He take notice of me? I have nothing to offer Him. But that is exactly why God's grace is beautiful. He knows you. And He's looking towards you. I loved hearing the story of one of Tennessee's former governors, a man by the name of Ben Hooper. He was the governor of this state from 1911 to 1915. Grew up in Gatlinburg. And if there was every, any, ever anyone that looked like they would never amount to anything, it was Ben Hooper. See, not only did he grow up poor, he grew up not knowing who his father was. He was what we would call today an illegitimate child. There were a lot of fistfights when Ben was in elementary school because his classmates would make fun of him. Ben, what's your daddy's name? Ben, Ben, where's your dad? What do you do on Father's Day, Ben? So rather than fighting at every turn of the corner, Ben just began to withdraw. He would avoid people. But one day a new preacher came to the Baptist church in Gatlinburg. And this preacher was good and crowds started coming. And this preacher's reputation grew. Grew to the point where Ben Hooper wanted to find out exactly what was going on. So he started sneaking into the church. He would wait till after the service had begun and he would slide into the back to the door of the church, sit on the back pew if there was space. If not, he would just stand at the rear. And then when the benediction was being prayed, he would sneak out so nobody would see him. And he wouldn't have to talk to anyone. One day the preaching was so good and the singing was so beautiful and the benediction was so short, Ben wasn't able to sneak out. And before he knew it, he was caught in the crowd of people exiting the building and he found himself at a moment's notice face to face with his preacher. And the preacher asked him that question that Ben dreaded hearing. Hey son, where's your daddy? What's his name? Ben didn't know what to do. He just looked down and the preacher did something amazing. The preacher put his hand on Ben's chin and lifted his head. And he said, son, I know who your father is. I can see the resemblance. You're a child of the king, aren't you? You're a child of the king. 
Ben said that moment made all the difference in his life. Because he experienced grace. To know that even though the world looked at him as someone who had nothing to offer, God looked on him as his child. Such is the grace of God that says, no matter who you are, what you've done, what your status is in life, the Lord knows you. And he extends his grace to you. But there's a caveat to keep in mind. Look at verse 50. It says, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Now, mercy and grace are used synonymously in this passage. I know there are theological nuances you can look at in the words, but in this case, in the the poetic nature of this passage, they are used synonymously. But notice His mercy. This grace is given to those who fear Him. Now, those is wide open. You can be anybody and everybody, but there must be a fear of the Lord, and this is why. Unless you recognize who God is... You won't seek grace. Unless you know who God is and fear Him, you won't ask for mercy. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what it means to fear the Lord. And typically today, we say, well, fear here means to respect. And I don't disagree with that. However, I think we do need to come back that there is a sense of fear. Being scared that we need to have about being in the presence of God. I don't say that lightly. I say that based upon the Bible. When you read of those who are in the presence of God, they are terrified. Isaiah, when he's in the presence of God and he sees the seraphim and he sees the God on the throne, what is the first thing that Isaiah says? Woe unto me. You know what that means? I'm dead. I'm about to die because I'm a man of unclean lips in the presence of God. You see, there is a level where our knees need to shake at the thought of being in the presence of God. And that's why we ask for mercy. When you recognize the status of who God is, the authority of who God is, the holiness of God, the first response is, Lord, be merciful to me. I can't be in your presence without your grace. And everyone who recognizes their need for the grace of God receives it. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you recognize that God is holy and He is just and we deserve His wrath and we say, Lord, be merciful to me. God is gracious. That's why it emphasizes in verse 50 from generation to generation. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To all who would call upon Him asking for mercy, He gives it. So the first thing we recognize is that God's grace is magnificent because it's given to everybody who is anybody. You don't have to be a somebody. And it's magnificent because it brings about a reversal. Notice where Mary goes next in verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. You notice that all the verbs are past tense. She's looking at things that God has done in the past. Specifically, she's probably thinking of the Exodus. The reason I say that is because in verse 51, she begins with, He has shown the strength of his arm. That's a a way of speaking of God's power to bring about redemption. It's associated with the Exodus. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 15, Moses wrote, God brought you out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. 
remind you, the Exodus refers to when God brought the children of Israel out of slavery. The children of Israel were powerless to bring this about. They could not stand up to the Egyptian army. They had no weapons. They had no means to buy weapons. But when you read through the Exodus account, you will find that when Israel was set free by the power of God, the Egyptians were so glad to get rid of them that they started giving away their jewelry, their gold, their wealth to the Israelites. In fact, it says in the Exodus that so Israel plundered Egypt without raising a sword because God had broken the proud. Pharaoh was arrogant against God. Even after he had set, after, after he had released Israel, he decided to recapture them. And what happened? His army was drowned in the Red Sea. God scattered the thoughts, the proud thoughts of their hearts. You see this all throughout the Scripture. Whether it's with Jezebel or Nebuchadnezzar or Pilate, those who are proud and arrogant against God are broken. In the book of Proverbs and the book of James, it puts it like this. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You see, these past tense verbs of what God has done serve as a model for what He will do in the future. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. God will do that in the future. He has exalted those of humble estate. He will indeed do that in the future, and He will accomplish this through Christ. This great reversal. That's why the hungry will be filled with good things. The rich sent away empty. Not because there's necessarily sin and having possessions. The sin is when we look to those possessions for salvation rather than looking to God. The circumstances of Mary did not change. What I mean by that is she was still poor. But she had joy. Because of God's grace. Because of His power. And that same joy is available to all who will humble themselves. As I said, I don't have time to explore the riches of this text. But if I could end, I want to end on the availability of grace to those who will ask for it. I always find it humorous how I think the Lord brings things to my mind as I'm working through a text often illustrations that come to my mind out of the middle of nowhere. And that happened with this one. As I was thinking about the humble being filled with good things or the hungry being filled with good things, my mind went back to my childhood. I think the older I get, the more thankful I am for where I grew up and when I grew up. Athens was much like Mayberry. I, I don't ever remember us locking our front door. I grew up on a street that had lots of kids and it was such that we freely went in and out of one another's house. You just knocked once or twice on the door. Then you could open it and go in. It was really no big deal. It was a Saturday morning. I wasn't home and my dad would tell about this instance. It was Saturday morning and dad had sat down to biscuits and gravy. When there was a knock on the door, it opened. And one of our neighbors, Josh, walked in. Josh was maybe seven years old at the most. He lived across the street. Josh asked if Doug or Mark are home and we, weren't, we were away somewhere. I wish we were at home since dad was having biscuits and gravy. Dad said, no, they're not here, and Dad turned around to walk back to sit down and eat, but Josh didn't leave. Josh walked over to the table and just stood there looking at the biscuits and gravy. I think Dad decided to have a little fun with him, so Dad just started eating again. Josh didn't move. He just kept looking. And finally, Dad went, Josh, 
You want some biscuits and gravy? Dad said Josh didn't say a thing. He just went. Dad got up and scooped out some more biscuits and gravy for him. And they sat and they ate together. And I thought, my goodness. The table of God's grace spread out. And the joy we long for is in front of us. In Jesus. And all we need to do is just say, yes, Lord. Let me have mercy. And God will give it. And we will know joy. And we will be filled no matter our circumstance. Now I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will. If you've never asked for the mercy of God, never recognized who God is, this morning I want to ask you to consider that. The day will come when you will stand before God. That will be true of all of us. And on that day, what will you offer to be made right with God? What could you give God? The truth is, there's nothing you could give Him. You only need to ask for His mercy. And you need to do that now. For on that day you stand before Him, it will be too late. That's why today needs to be the day of your salvation. If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, I know we have deacons that are available. I will be available to talk with you about what it means to ask for God's mercy. If I may say a word to those that have been saved, you've experienced the mercy of God. But you're not experiencing joy. It could be because you're expecting the circumstances of your life to change and you're thinking well if, if I've experienced grace surely I'll get more stuff and God is telling you you don't need stuff to be joyful you need to know me so the spirit may be leading you today to simply say father forgive me I've let my values be placed in the wrong place I've loved the things of this world more than I've loved you God Forgive me and rest assured that he will. Father, we're looking for joy. Direct us towards you. You are the source of joy. And even though our circumstances are different than Mary's, our testimony is very similar. You have given us grace and mercy. So let our souls magnify. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.